Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Uh, again, this is our second week being on our temporary recording spot. Um, our sanctuary was being used, and so we couldn't record in there. But I am excited to be back from vacation. Got to spend time away during spring break with the family. Uh, spent a few days in Bend, and then got to go up and see my grandmother, who we haven't seen in several years. She lives out on the East Coast, and so uh, she flew out to see my parents, and we got to go up and spend a few days with her. And uh, really thankful for the time away. Thank you uh, to the church for allowing me uh, time off. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. In terms of announcements and things, you know, as we're getting towards the end of March, heading towards April, start to think about Easter. And so just so you know, we will have uh, Easter Sunday morning. We will have a Good Friday service. And uh, throughout the week of Holy Week, I will be posting uh, videos daily uh, as we've done in the past several years. So we'll have more information coming on that, but just put that on your calendars that we will have a Good Friday service and Easter Sunday morning as well. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. So here in Matthew chapter 8, the Sermon on the Mount is over. Jesus has been teaching the people from chapter 5 through chapter 7, and now it's over, and they are coming down the mountain. Verse 1 says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to a priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Today we're talking about the people that Jesus heals. And I think there's uh, three people were shown that Jesus heals. And the first is the stranger. He's just going down the hill. And this man with leprosy comes and says, can you cleanse me? Jesus doesn't know this man. He's a stranger. Leprosy wasn't just a disease that afflicted a person's body, but it made them ceremonially unclean. They had to live apart from the rest of the community. They had to be quarantined. They couldn't go and worship in the temple, which was central and sacred in their life, in their community. They had no community life. You could be the richest person. You could be the most successful person. You could be the most popular person. And if you had leprosy, you had to go and live apart and away. Why do we pray for people's healing? The reason is because there are people that still have uncurable diseases, diseases and afflictions that are beyond even modern medicine. Leprosy now is entirely treatable. If it's caught early, it can be cured. And even if you are in later stages of leprosy, the medicine is so good because it's essentially a bacterial infection. The, 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 method, the, message, the methods and the medicine is so good and advanced for what we now see as sort of a simple disease that even if you can't cure it, you can put it into functional permanent remission and live a normal life. Leprosy is still an issue in parts of the developing world, but it is not something that is a wide concern for most people living today, even in the developing world. But back then, they didn't know any of that. 
Back then, there was no cure. And so here comes this stranger with an uncurable disease. And even with modern medicine, the church's prayer list is always filled with people who are in really, really tough situations where medicine seems unable to help. As thankful as we are for our doctors and our frontline workers, as thankful for, as we are for modern science, there comes a point where it's in the hands of God. And so we pray. Now, why do we have to care about strangers? Why did Jesus care about strangers? Because in a, in a little bit, he's going to heal a woman who he would have known, the family member of one of his closest friends. He could have said, I, I got to get to you later. I got to go to the person that I know. But he cared about the stranger. Why do we need to care about the stranger? Because we were once strangers and estranged from God. Because we who are believers, we who are believers were at one point unbelievers. We who are in the family of God, who live in the kingdom of God, were once outside of the kingdom, not part of the family. And we were welcomed in. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for me. We should pray for the stranger. Now, do we pray for people's physical healing? All the time. All the time. I believe that God heals people to this day. And I will never stop praying for people's healing. I know people who have been miraculously physically healed and you'll never read about it in a scientific journal or a medical textbook. And the reason is it is not replicatable. You can't do a controlled study on somebody being healed so that it just gets written off as a statistical anomaly that every so often a doctor might talk about, you know, kind of in a late night musing, but it's not going to get written up anywhere. So I pray for healing. I also know people who have been miraculously healed through modern medicine. What do I mean? Let me give you a couple examples. I know a woman who legally died and came back to life. And you might say, that's crazy, but that's only the beginning of the story. I know a woman who collapsed at work and she was taken to the hospital and the admitting physician in the ER said she has an appendicitis. Let's get her ready for the treatment for an appendicitis. And she was like four months pregnant. A doctor, the, the, the head doctor on his day off happened to be at the hospital on his day off, walked past the room and saw this woman and just for whatever reason, looked at her chart. And he could just tell by looking at her chart and looking at the physical symptoms he was seeing that it was not an appendicitis. And immediately he went into action and he was yelling at nurses and said, we got to get her into the operating room now. And as she was being wheeled into the operating room, she said, I felt the most intense pain I have ever felt. And I've given birth to two kids. That's, that's her words, not mine. She said, I've given birth to two kids and I felt the most intense pain I have ever felt, worse than childbirth. And then I don't remember anything. And what happened was she had a, a burst fallopial tube and it caused her circulatory system, her blood, 
the circulatory system to collapse and she legally died. And as they were working to try to save her, inexplicably she came back. What are the odds? What are the odds that a doctor on his day off walked into the room, happened to look at her chart and knew what to do because she would have died. I know another brother who couldn't speak. Great guy. His name was Gary. And, and Gary couldn't speak more than a whisper. Uh, he had lived kind of a wild life before coming to a Christian, you know, it's like some of our folks have. And, and, and he couldn't speak because of choices he had made more than a whisper. And I never heard him talk this. That's as loud as he could get. But before he had lost his voice, he loved to sing praise and worship songs at church to Jesus. He loved that. And Gary would pray all the time, Lord, just once before I die, could I lift my voice to you again? And then one night we were having a church prayer and worship night. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but the church I was at was like mildly charismatic. It was like charismatics with like a seatbelt on. But one of the things, if you're ever part of a mildly charismatic church or any kind of charismatic church and, and there's kind of a prayer and worship time is if you see in the corner of your eye somebody coming up towards the stage, you're like, oh dear, what's happening right now? And if you've never experienced it, uh, it's, it's something wonderful and yet terrifying all at the same time. And so he comes up and he says, I want to share something with the church. And I was like, well, and then I paused and I wait, Gary is talking to me in a normal voice. And I said, Gary, get up and share, you know, and he shared how God had healed him. And I thought it was a miraculous healing. But what we found out was he went to the VA. And while he was there, the normal VA doctor wasn't there. And he was talking to this like temp doctor. And the temp doctor goes, hey, do you want to get your voice back? And he's been told by doctors it's never going to happen. And the temp doctor says, there's a specialist who is here just for this week. And I think he can help too. So they walked over to the, where that specialist was. The specialist takes a look at Gary's throat and says, oh yeah, I can fix that. Again, he had been told by every doctor that's never going to happen. He'd gotten second and third opinions. A quick outpatient treatment and he had his voice back for the rest of his life. We in our own church, we know Bob Middleton and he shared this story enough that I feel comfortable sharing it publicly. Uh, he shared it with our church before, but Bob had cancer and was going to die. And I remember I was living in California at the time and, and uh, Bob called me and he said, Adam, I, I, I don't know how much longer I have, but it's not long. And I could hear it in his voice. And I talked with him and I prayed with him and I got off the phone and I told Angie, I said, at some point here in the next few months, you know, we're in California. I said, I'm gonna have to drive up to Oregon for Bob's funeral. I think he's gonna die soon. And then a, a couple weeks later, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from Bob and you could hear the energy in his voice and the strength in his voice. And I said, what happened? And he said, I'm on this experimental medicine at OHSU that, you know, it's totally new trial. It was kind of a last ditch Hail Mary that my doctor got me in on. And I'm responding better. In fact, to this day, five plus years later, Bob nationally is the best case in that whole uh, therapy that's now being used much wide, much wider across the country. But he is still to this day, the most successful case with that treatment. 
Now, did, did modern medicine save his life? Yes, absolutely. But do you not see the hand of God putting him on a Hail Mary at OHSU? I do. Jesus heals people. And there are people that need healing. So we pray for people's healing. And we pray for people that we don't know. This happens all the time in our small groups and in our main service on Sunday mornings where we pray. If you're watching online, we, in our main service on Sunday mornings in person, we pray. And and it's not just that somebody gets up and says a prayer or that I say a prayer here or there. After the sermon is done, we have a prayer list that we keep. And if you ever want anything added to our prayer list, you can just email me, adam at faithonhill.com. But I read the prayer list and then I say, hey, if something really resonated with you, pray about that. And people pray. And some people just pray silently, but more and more people are praying out loud. And it's really neat to see where somebody will bring a a situation. And I'll just say, hey, this is the situation. It's this person. It's a coworker of this person in our church. We don't know them, but God's given them to us to pray for. So let's pray for them. And at first it'll be me or the person who brought the prayer request. But then you start to see after a week or two, other people are mentioning it in prayer and praying for it. And it's becoming their prayer request. These strangers that God has given us to pray for, our church has embraced and prayed for. I'm excited to share with them an answer to prayer because We've been praying for this uh, little boy with, with COVID who is in the ICU that we don't even know. God gave him to us to pray for. And he's back in school and we're rejoicing. We pray for the stranger because Jesus cared about the stranger. Jesus healed the stranger. Now, this whole thing here about see that you don't tell anyone, it just has to do with a practical reality. Um, especially in Mark's gospel, he makes it really clear what was going on here was that basically uh, if too many people knew what was going on, then it became impossible for Jesus to go into towns and minister there. So Jesus was just trying to stay under the radar so he could do more ministry, which seems counterintuitive to us as Americans. Broadcast everything. Jesus actually did the opposite. And he said, we're going to stay under the radar so we can do more ministry. And then whenever somebody would disobey him and go tell everybody, he actually made it so for a while he couldn't go into a town and he had to go to these really isolated places. And that's how we get the feeding of the 5,000 because the only place he could go was where it was away from everything and nobody had food or supplies out there. And so that's what that was all about. And then he says, offer the gift Moses commanded. In the Old Testament law, there was the sacrifices that you were to make if you were cleansed of a disease. It was actually such a rare thing, like nobody did it, that it had become a mark of the Messiah, that when people uh, come and and started to make sacrifices for the, the, the cleansing of their disease, hey, that might be an indication that the Messiah has come. So Jesus heals the stranger. And then he gets to where he's going, the town of Capernaum, Capernaum. And in verse five, it says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. A centurion would have been a leader in the Roman army. It's kind of like a a master sergeant in our military. And the centurion said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. So now he doesn't have a stranger coming and asking for help. He has a sinner 
He has an enemy coming and asking for help. Why do I say he's a sinner? Because we know about the practices of the Roman military. They were the violent oppressors of God's people. They were by force the occupying oppressors of Israel. These people, if you went out of line, would beat you, could arrest you at any moment with no consequence. They took and did not return. The sinner has come asking for help. Also, it is possible, it is possible that the servant that he's talking about, that this centurion was in what we might call a complex sexual relationship with. A complex sexual relationship. Why do I say that? Because most of the time when you hear a pastor say, in the original Greek, this word means this, it's fluff. And I try to avoid that. I try to only talk about what a word in Hebrew or Greek was translated into English if, if it really has a point. Well, here's the point. There are a couple of words for servant in first century Greek, which is what the Bible in the New Testament was written in. And we just translated them into one word, servant. Most of the time, for what we would think of as servant, it's the word doulos. But here, here, Matthew chooses to use the word pice. Lord, he said, my pice lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. That word for servant indicates a speciality and was usually used for a favored young male servant who culturally there was often a sexual component involved in that relationship. So here is a guy who by his own word identification says the young boy and it could be in the terms of young boy. This could mean anywhere from like older elementary to like younger high school in terms of age. But let's just say he's 12. The young boy who's my servant and by the word choice he makes, the young boy that I have a, what we would consider a statutory sexual relationship with, a homosexual re relationship at that. He needs healing. Will you heal him? What does Jesus say in response? He says, shall I come and heal him? So Jesus is saying that he is not only willing to work in the lives of these people. He's willing to heal him. He's willing to enter the centurion's home. He's willing to enter the centurion's home. We don't have a sense of this. But in their culture, and again, this is one of those things that maybe we don't understand, but they would have understood. In Jewish culture in the first century, you did not eat with those who were considered unclean. You did not go into the home of someone who was considered unclean. You remember in other parts of the gospel where Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and people said, what are you doing? 
this is that but bigger because this is a non-Jew and a oppressor of our people, and he's in relationships that that we would uh, the the Jewish culture in that day. I'm not saying there wasn't homosexual activity happening in Israel. I'm saying that culturally they would not have accepted it. But Jesus says, I'm going to go, and not only am I going to go, but I'm going to enter your house, which was a big deal. It was a, a thing culturally that would not have been done. I'm going to go and I'm going to enter your house. I heard the story one time of a well-known preacher back in the 80s, 90s. Not somebody I'm necessarily the biggest fan of, but he was on Larry King. And the other guest on Larry King that night was Larry Flint. And Larry Flint is a well-known pornographer, the guy who started Hustler magazine. And as they were speaking after the show had taped, Jerry Falwell, the well-known preacher, and Larry uh, Flint were talking. And Larry Flint says, where are you going? And he says, i got to go to the airport to fly home. And he says, hey, let me fly you on my private jet. And, and it was Larry, uh, it was Jerry Falwell's uh, younger son, not Jerry Jr., the one that got in all kinds of scandal, um, but the one who seems to be okay. And uh, but he's telling the story and he said, so me and my dad were on Larry Flint's private jet. And they were just talking, and they mostly apparently talked about baseball. And after they got off the jet and, and headed home, he said to his dad, why did you do that? Why did you spend time with that man? And he said, who else is going to do it? Who, who else is going to be a Christian and spend time with him, if not us? Over the years, there have been some in the church who have said, we want to withdraw ourselves isolate ourselves from the world around us. I think we got to engage because that's what Jesus did. He said, I'm not just going to heal you. I'm going to engage with you. Now, does that mean that he is condoning this relationship? No. In fact, even our, our, our neighbors in the LGBTQ plus community would not condone this relationship. This is something we would agree with them on by and large. So he's, but he's not condoning this relationship, but he's saying, I'm going to engage with you and you need help and I'm going to help. I want to help those who need help. And we don't go, oh, you need help. Could you fill out this questionnaire to make sure you have all of our theological beliefs? We just say, who needs help? Who can we pray for? We pray for the healing of the stranger. We pray for the healing of the sinner. It's better to be the sinner who comes to Jesus than the pious person who denies him. How do I know that? Well, verse 8 says, The centurion replied, Lord, do I, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I am myself and a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes and I say to my servant, do this and he does that. So he's saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a soldier, but I'm not just a soldier. I command soldiers. So I know what it is to be commanded to do something and I do it. And if I command one of my troops to do something, they are going to do it. You have authority, Jesus. If you just say it, it'll happen. Verse 10, Jesus heard this and he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Better to be the sinner who comes to Jesus in belief than the pious religious person who denies Jesus. Here is a, here is a man, violent man, an oppressive man, a man who is in a relationship that no one would condone. But he comes to Jesus. Better to be him than the religious, the pious, the fakers who would come to Jesus and they would ask their questions. You know, it says in all four Gospels, the scribes or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law or the Sadducees would come and they would ask Jesus a question. But it was always to entrap him, to try to make him look bad. Do you think there were religious people that didn't need healing? Do you think that there were scribes and Pharisees who couldn't have used Jesus' help? But it was this Roman centurion who came and asked. We pray for healing for the sinner because Jesus heals sinners. We want to invite everyone in. Now, does that mean that we're not going to call people to repentance? Absolutely, we are going to call people to repentance. I call myself to repentance. I call this, you know, the Christian to repentance. We call the unbeliever to repentance. Somebody once asked me if there were any secret Nazis in our church. And I said, well, if they're secret Nazis, they're keeping it secret from me too. But if I found out there was a secret Nazi in our church, I'd be excited to preach the gospel to them so that they could repent of their sin. Religious people need healing, but they didn't ask. It was the irreligious, the sinner who came and asked Jesus for help, and he received healing. Jesus heals the stranger. Jesus heals the sinner. And he heals the family too. When he came, verse 14, to Peter's house in Capernaum and Peter's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and drove out the spirits into the word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our affirmities and bore our diseases. We pray for the sinner, we pray for the stranger, and we pray for our own Christian family because we know that we have needs too. Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus did a work of healing in her body. Now, this is the point where most Protestant preachers that I know will make a point to say that Peter was married, he had a mother-in-law, and if he was supposedly the first pope, which I don't believe he was, but if he was supposedly the first pope, then obviously the Catholics get it wrong because Peter was married and had a mother-in-law. When I did church history again, I hadn't really deep-dived into church history in a broad sense since Bible college days. But when I did it again for my master's, I gained a new appreciation of the monastic celibate life that some Christians throughout church history have chosen. Um, I do not believe that it is a command. I believe that here the scripture shows us that the apostles were married and had families. And I'm thankful for my wife and kids. And I would uh, 
I, I think it, it's a bondage that many in certain church traditions are put under to have to remain forced celibate. That being said, I also have gained a historical appreciation for why at, w- at one point or at certain times or places it might have been the appropriate thing to do. And if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to, to talk about it so you can reach out and we'll have conversation. The bigger issue isn't Peter's mother-in-law. That's the thing we can get sidetracked on. This is the thing to think about. One person was healed, Peter's mother-in-law. And then people in the town start to hear that, that she's been healed. And so they have the faith to bring others. One person was healed and then others came. You know, I think sometimes we have this tendency to just think, oh, not much is happening. We had local conference last night, and that's where um, churches in our local area that are part of our, our conference of churches, we get together once a year with our superintendent, and we sort of share with each other what's going on. And the churches in our area tend to be a little smaller. And so, you know, we're sharing, and this is kind of like, oh, you know, we only had one uh, person come to faith last year. We had one baptism. And I say, praise the Lord. We had one baptism last year, and I'm excited for more. I believe that we have this tendency in America, because everything in America, bigger is better. We have this tendency to just sort of write off the work that God is doing. But it started with one woman in one town. It could start with one person in one family who is healed of their sins, set free from the bondages of addiction. One person who finds forgiveness and new life in Jesus, and it starts a chain reaction. And that's what happened here. Jesus heals the stranger. Jesus heals the sinner. But he does work in the lives of people who believe. And as that change happens in us, it has cascading effects that are felt all around. And we thank God for the healing work that he does. Do I believe that Jesus heals people today? Yes, so I pray for healing. Does Jesus heal everyone? No, because he didn't heal everyone in his own day. I want you to think about, go and read the first few chapters of the book of Acts. There were people who needed healing. The book of Acts, the first like five chapters happen within 40 days to two years of Jesus's death and resurrection. Do you think those people didn't need healing? That a blind man in Acts chapter three didn't need healing when Jesus was in Jerusalem before his crucifixion? And yet Jesus didn't heal that man because he had a timing. So you say, oh, I prayed once about that and nothing happened. Pray again. I, I tried to believe once and nothing happened. Believe again. Because God's work is in his time and it's not done. And I'm so thankful that we can continue to trust that God will do his work through the power of his Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did in his resurrection. God bless you. We'll see you this week in the small groups and next Sunday morning at 1030 a.m.